Welcome to the Business of Primary Care podcast, where we discuss the latest news, trends, and practices in primary care. Our community is full of healthcare's best. From physicians to CEOs, you will hear from brilliant minds on topics ranging from value-based care to the latest in healthcare tech. On today's episode, we dive into an overview of the current state of primary care. We talk about corporatization, the shortage of primary care providers, vertical integration, and the importance of aligning incentives. Our host for today's discussion is Katila Farley. Katila is an experienced healthcare executive. As a registered nurse, her professional experience includes 18 plus years in healthcare, with over 15 plus years in healthcare management. She is certified in value-based care and extremely skilled in ACO, risk, care coordination, care transitions, and all aspects of managing and growing a medical practice, both small and large. And as you'll find in this season, she's full of insight, passion, and kindness. We welcome two guests today, Jared and Blake of Workweek. To begin the discussion, I'll let them introduce themselves. All right, well, thank you for having me on the podcast. Very excited. Um, so I'm Jared Dushevsky. I'm from Cherry Hill, New Jersey, a suburb of Philadelphia. Went to Lehigh University for undergrad, um, followed the whole pre-med track, very boring, but stuck around another year to get a master's in healthcare systems engineering, which was not boring, and basically changed my path uh, in the healthcare world. Um, I'm currently a fourth-year medical student uh, in New York City, I'm applying to residency now, going into internal medicine. Uh, and my main goal is to uh, take my systems engineering knowledge, my healthcare knowledge, um, and change uh, medicine for the better. My name is Blake Madden. I write hospitality alongside uh, Jared at Workweek, and we'll, we'll get into that in a sec. But yeah, so I grew up in Dallas, Texas, and actually in Plano, which is a suburb north of Dallas, if you know where that is. Um, went to University of Texas for school, and uh, from there, graduated with a degree in finance and um, thought that, you know, the intersection of healthcare and, and finance would be, um, you know, really interesting, but also very stable. So went into that and found myself at a firm called VMG Health, where I had some great mentors and got a ton of great exposure to, uh, you know, healthcare in the various systems and um, doing due diligence and advisory and valuation and kind of understanding, you know, what drives value for these organizations, but also, you know, seeing all the various stakeholders and getting to talk to them, you know, on a daily basis and seeing the trends kind of emerge before they start. So yeah, and then alongside my consulting journey, I started writing a newsletter just because, you know, I, you know, just wanted to continue learning about healthcare. And so that evolved into um, kind of my current career today, which uh, which is really cool. Um, so, so Jared, <laughs> you want to get into, you know, how we kind of met and, and uh, you know, the this, this story from there? Yeah, of course. Fun story. So in, after my first semester of medical school, I started a, uh, healthcare newsletter called Healthcare Huddle, basically to keep physicians, medical students, and other providers informed on the happenings in healthcare, because these folks don't really have time to be reading up on news. And if they do have time, healthcare is very intimidating. There's a lot of jargon, I would say more intimidating than learning medicine and all the parts of the body and pathways. So I started this newsletter, just breaking down current events in healthcare. Uh, it grew very quickly, started building a team. And it was very fun to build it alongside medical school. I ended up building, uh, or we ended up building a like educational platform called Concepts to break down key terminology in healthcare. Like what is the Affordable Care Act? What are accountable care organizations? And 
uh, I reach out to Blake to, you know, hey, can you help us contribute? I am a big fan of your newsletter, uh, Healthy Muse. And then November 2021, Healthcare Huddle uh, ended up being acquired by Workweek. Uh, and the initial plan was for me to transition out to focus more on medical school and find someone else to to come in and take my place. And the first person I thought of was like Blake. Uh, and so my brother, who was my co-founder, and I, we like <laughs> called Blake on the phone and said, hey, what do you think about this? And now I'll segue to Blake. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So so Jared, Brett, and I had had built a pretty good relationship over you know the course of 2021 while they were building Huddle and then me just kind of doing the thing on the side of consulting. Um, and so, yeah, they reached out to me and said, hey, you know, wh- what do you think about, you know, coming on full time as a creator and riding under the Huddle brand? Um, and so, you know, at the time I was a little burnt out of consulting and, you know, I, I like to think that writing is a passion of mine and, you know, I love learning about healthcare. So the conversations went well. Yeah. Then, then I joined Workweek in, in February of 22. Uh, but as it turns out, Jared did not want to get rid of the writing bug. Um, and so he continued writing uh, Healthcare Huddle. And so um, that left me in a little bit of a bind. Uh, and it took us about two months to come up with uh, the name Hospitology. But I think it ended up turning out really well, Jared, um, because, you know, you, you know, you write more about kind of like the, the, the clinical focus and, you know, the business overlap, whereas I write for more of like a, you know, consulting and like financial focus with a business overlap in healthcare. Um, but, you know, all of these things and factors touch touch one another. So yeah, so so that's kind of how Hospitology came to be launched in late April. And then yeah, we're a brother newsletter to Healthcare Huddle. I'd love to get your thoughts on what trends in primary care have your attention. Um, and, you know, whoever would like to jump, jump. Uh, but let's just kind of talk about current trends and and what what's got your attention. I'll start with the the elephant in the room, which is like the corporatization of of primary care. Um, with these retailers, insurers, and you know, investment-backed um, startups like Oak Street Health, all getting their foot into the primary care space, I know I know about it from a very high level. Blake will dive into like the transactional deals, but basically, uh, if you follow the money, the vi- value-based care reimbursements are very lucrative, especially from Medicare Advantage, which is very attractive for these retailers, these insurers, uh, and these investment-backed uh, startups. Uh, and the way I think about it all is like, it's just an optimization problem. It's like, how do you maximize revenue um, given a patient population with um, a predetermined risk and how can you cut costs? And so all these corporations are basically getting their foot into the primary care space um, and solving this optimization problem. And a lot of them are doing it very well. Um, and it's attracting more retailers, which uh, Blake can jump into. Yeah, Jared. And I mean, I, I think that you've really hit the nail on the head with with it. You know, one of the the biggest trends in healthcare, probably much to the chagrin of physicians. You know, with corporatization <laughs> oh, yeah. and uh, you know increased investment, and also you know you know payers and you know prior auths and all those issues, which we might cover, we might not. <laughs> uh, but but basically, kind of you know meddling with the physicians' kind of decision, right? So, based on you know where investment dollars are going and, and recent trends, we've really seen quite a few different trends in, in healthcare and in primary care specifically, especially since the pandemic. So backing up a little bit with COVID, you know, you saw a decrease in elective surgeries and, and, and lower utilization, right? Um, so, so what does that have an effect on? Okay, that hurts traditional fee-for-service providers. Um, it really helps payers and, and people in the risk game. Um, and it also helped 
a lot of, you know, virtual care platforms and, and virtual players and helped spur a lot of, you know, innovation and, and investments into digital health. Maybe there was a little bit of a bubble and, and some overspeculation there, definitely. But I think that, you know, in any sort of trend that's emerging, you're going to have some, you know, over exuberance of, of capital allocation into like, you know, exciting business models, right? Anyway, so, so as a result of kind of all of these factors coming together, there have been a lot of payers and strategic players investing into primary care. Um, and and on, the, on the flip side of that coin, you've seen a lot of primary care and, and services players um, really struggle. So really, you've seen the dynamic shift in the favor of payers. So as a result, you're seeing a lot of, you know, I think that vertical integration is going to be a huge trend in primary care and in healthcare in general over the next decade. Um, and, and you've kind of seen transactions that bring that to light. For instance, the elephant in the room, obviously, is Optum, right? So you've got United Healthcare. And, you know, Optum is this huge growth engine for them um, because under, you know, their service wing, under, you know, Optum Health and Optum Rx and Optum Insight or whatever it is, um, these guys, like th their profits are not capped in a services arrangement. Whereas in, um, you know, health insurance and Medicare Advantage and, and the ACA, their medical loss ratio is capped to 85% or 80%, right? Um, so that's why you're seeing, that's one of the reasons why you're seeing things shift toward, toward services. Um, and the other reason is integrated care delivery, right? So, so that's going to be another key trend. And, and that's why, you know, healthcare is favoring vertical alignment because, you know, Optum can create this huge siloed, incredible structure where, you know, they have now, you know, as of, I think the end of 2022, they have 70,000 aligned physicians. They're making huge acquisitions in names like, you know, Kelsey Siebold in Houston, which had a, already had a huge Medicare Advantage presence and large physician base with, you know, ancillaries galore. And then you're, you're also seeing them make acquisitions in things like, you know, a LHC group, which is a home health provider where, you know, they can do in-home in health assessments, risk score appropriately, and, and meet the patient where they are in the home as well. Uh, so I would say that vertical integration is probably the, the largest trend I see going on in healthcare and in primary care. So, I mean, there's just a lot to, lot to explore there. So let's zoom out for a minute. An integrated delivery system is a network of healthcare facilities existing under a parent company. Loosely speaking, it is an organization that provides a continuum of healthcare services with hopes to improve care quality and control costs. And there's two main types of integrated delivery systems, horizontal, and vertical. Horizontal integration is defined by the Pan-American Health Organization as the coordination of activities across operating units that are at the same stage in the process of delivering services, meaning two primary care clinics or two hospitals joining forces. This type of partnership allows for lower costs when purchasing supplies and drugs in bulk, eliminates a lot of inefficiencies and duplicative costs when it comes to human resources, services, and technology. But on the other hand, you have vertical integration, which is defined as the coordination of services among operating units that are at different stages of the process of delivering patient services. So, for example, a hospital may partner with a physician group. As you imagine with this type of collaboration, there's better communication between patient providers, minimal redundant testing, supportive transitions from one level of care to another level of care, 
which all ultimately improve outcomes at lower costs. In this model, the hope is that patient care would expand beyond disease management during the acute disease period and include prevention and wellness as well. Obviously, these models can be ideal when executed properly and when available to patients. But just like anything, there are nuances that can make implementing vertical integration very difficult, including the need and right for patients to have choice in who their providers are and having access to a variety of different types of care and education on what's best for them. There are also some notable legal and regulatory barriers, including anti-kickback laws, the Ethics and Patient Referral Act, and the Sherman Act, just to name a few. But overall, as the shift to value-based care continues to evolve, vertical integration is a popular solution to the problem. And we see this in CVS acquiring Aetna, Amazon and One Medical, and, and countless more. The real question remains, how do patients actually feel about the corporatization of their care options? And how much choice will they have as it becomes more and more difficult for primary care clinics and providers to survive without a large entity as their parent company? So that leads us into our next topic with Jared. As a current medical student, are med schools actually talking about and preparing their students for the business side of medicine? On the one hand, we have this shortage of primary care physicians, like severe shortage. And medical schools are trying to do everything they can to encourage students to go the primary care route. Some schools are saying, um, we'll waive your tuition or it's like student loan forgiveness programs. But it doesn't really seem to be working. It's projected that the number of primary care physicians is only going to grow like 2 to 3% within the next decade. <laughs> it's like, what's going on? And the reality is, and I, I think this is one of the challenges of primary care and like the novel reimbursement models we're shifting towards, is that medical students don't understand how like reimbursement works uh, and the potential and like the upside potential of going into like risk-based arrangements um, after residency. I was speaking with the uh, a physician, emergency medicine physician uh, last week, and he said, you know, medical school is crazy. You make a $300,000 investment, but you don't even know how you get paid. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> and it, was, it stuck with me. It's so true. So you're not taught about fee-for-service. You're not taught about um, value-based care in medical school. And maybe there's no time for it, sure, uh, but I'm sure it can be integrated into curricula. Because it, it is incentivizing. I'm at the point now where I don't know exactly what I want to do three years from now. I'm going to be in internal medicine. But if this primary care space becomes even more attractive and there's uh, upside in joining something a, a place like Oak Street Health, uh, then that's like attractive for me. Because I understand, I think I'm a unique case, an edge case. I'm, I understand how these reimbursement models are working, the trends. I mean, that's the whole point of this podcast. But not everyone else does. Uh, so... I, you can only teach medical students so much in medical school. My goal with Healthcare Huddle and Blake's goal with like hospitality is really to educate uh, stakeholders on these trends and these models. Will it work? Maybe will not. I hope it works. But that's what I'm seeing from the uh, on the floor, on the ground. Absolutely. So thinking through that, what other areas do we think primary care could focus on beyond just the doctors? Do you think there's other areas that We'll, we'll see a focus shift to either types of providers or change in how we provide primary care. I know, I know we've seen a lot and I know Blake, I, I can see your, your thoughts spinning. So why don't you run with that one? <laughs> yeah, hundred percent. And I, I think Jared and I have both talked about this and um, it's a really interesting trend that's, that's kind of been around for a minute, but um, I think might start gaining a little bit of steam, especially with the kind of, you know, 
physician shortages at hand is this idea of full practice authority for for mid-levels and um, APPs. I, I think that full practice authority will be a big trend in primary care and, and also, you know, specialty care and healthcare in general. Um, because, you know, one, it, you know, there's, there's a little bit of controversy, obviously, surrounding full practice authority. And Jared, I'll be interested to hear your thoughts on it from like kind of more of like a physician perspective. But the, the thinking is economically, right? APPs make less money. Their compensation's lower, probably like, you know, in the order of magnitude of half, potentially. And at the same time, they require less schooling. And studies indicate that they can, you know, cover the care gaps up to maybe like, you know, 90% of what a physician could, could do or, you know, some, somewhere around there. So when you think about, you know, that and, and the shortage in primary care physicians, APPs have a real opportunity um, and business models have a real opportunity to capitalize on APPs um, to address that shortage and um, to also, you know, potentially use maybe tech or, or software or, you know, new care delivery models to, to fill in the gaps in primary care. Now, you know, will that result in better patient care or will, you know, certain higher acuity cases slip through the cracks and lead to higher cost uh, remains to be seen. There's also been some studies recently that indicate that APPs um, prefer out more for higher utilization for, for labs and imaging. Um, I don't know if those results are necessarily conclusive, but uh, th there is a lot of kind of, you know, controversy and unknown surrounding full practice authority. But despite that, you know, labor is the biggest component. And at the end of the day, they cost less. So that I think economically that will drive the trend forward. I'm a big proponent of like follow the money. Where's the money going? Where's the data? And I was talking about physician primary care growth. Over the next 10 years, it was 2 to 3%. Do you want to guess like what the NP growth is projected over the next 10 years? 70. Well, yeah, it's like 50%. Yeah, so <laughs> I was going to say really right high. Track, but, uh, <laughs> so high. So you're going to continue to have this shortage of primary care providers and uh, internists, but nurse practitioners can travel to states where there is like full practice authority and join these groups and, you know, take full control and full ownership over patients, be able to uh, use diagnostic imaging, be able to like create plans without uh, any physician supervisor. And like Blake said, NPs, you know, they're, they're, they can be more cost effective to deliver, I would say like low acuity or bread and butter care. So like stable patient with type two diabetes, you know, you don't, you don't really need a physician to truly manage that uh, maybe at first, but over time, an NP can be the one uh, taking control of that. But for like the high acuity, more complex conditions can be left towards these like highly trained uh, physicians. And like hinted at, there's a lot of like, controversies over uh, nurse practitioners, PAs, nurse anesthesiologists practicing at like, like pushing their license, like put like scope creep. And it's very controversial. There's a lot of discussion about it within the medical community. Uh, but at the end of the day, if there's a more cost effective way to take care of patients, whether it be like low acuity or these, again, bread and butter conditions, uh, then that's where the money is going to flow. Like that's just the way it is. So, and it's interesting too, that there's so much talk about primary care salaries and cost, yet they make up about 7% of the spend of healthcare. Reducing spend, cutting costs, the severe physician shortage, none of this is solved with a single solution. However, utilizing more MPs and PAs seems like a natural next step in the right direction. From a purely salary cost, primary care physicians make an average of $260,000 a year, 
while MPs and PAs make an average of 120000 Despite the nuances and types of care and proficiency, it would seem that when it comes to costs, deploying PAs to cover the physician shortage is a no-brainer. Interestingly, physician assistants are also among the top five fastest growing careers, according to the Bureau of Labor Statistics. The occupation is expected to grow by 37% by 2026, faster than any other career path in medicine. Additionally, MPs and PAs make up a larger portion of primary care providers than physicians. While 48.8% of PCPs in the U.S. are physicians, and that includes doctors specializing in internal medicine, family medicine, and pediatrics, 42.9% are MPs and 8.2% are PAs. Also, it seems important to note that just as Katila said, primary care spend only makes up 5-7% to of total healthcare spending. 38% is in hospitals and 20% is in other physician and professional specialty services. More and more, we see the need to redistribute the spend in healthcare. So let's see what Blake and Jared have to say. Where is the real money being spent? You know, the primary care, like traditional, like fee-for-service margins are very low. I think that value-based care helps with that. Um, you know, with shared savings, payouts, and, and those sorts of things. So that's kind of why you're seeing, you know, that, that kind of trend emerge, right? But yeah, I mean, as far as the rest of healthcare, you know, it, it isn't the statistic like, you know, primary care controls 90% of spend or, or something like that through, through referrals and those sorts of things, right? So yeah, I mean, I think that the next phase of, um, you know, kind of value-based care and, and, and risk is going to move into specialty care. I think that you're going to see a lot of innovation in that space and a lot of new business models coming out. I actually had a conversation with one of the founders of a startup called The Commons Clinic, and, and they're working on musculoskeletal conditions. And you know, you're seeing a ton of orthopedic procedures getting pushed to the outpatient setting, right? And so, so that's a huge way for um, healthcare, you know, just in general, that to, to save costs is you know, hey, let, let's push these um, high dollar in, traditionally inpatient procedures into the ambulatory surgery center. Hey, you know, someone like the Commons Clinic will reach out to the payer, um, will create this kind of bundled payment arrangement that covers, you know, DME, covers the physician, covers the, you know, any potential surgeries or, or, or physical therapy. And we'll do that at a lower cost than, you know, a hospital could provide or another competitor in the market could provide. So, so that's kind of an example of a way that specialty care could create the next kind of wave of value-based care. And I, I think it's very interesting. I think we'll see a lot of different models there. And, and we've also seen, you know, kind of the emergence of specialty care and value-based care in the enhanced oncology model, but also the, uh, I can't remember what the kidney model is called, but, but from what I hear, both of those models seem to be fairly economically incentivized and, and lucrative from like a, you know, dollar standpoint. So I'll be interested to see you know, the level of participation there. Um, and, and not only that, but also, you know, future primary care models as well. And, and you know, what, where future innovation is beyond, you know, ACR reach and beyond shared savings. Jared, did you have anything you wanted to add to that? That was a great response, Blake. Yeah, I won't go as in depth as, as Blake did, but just from like the student perspective and like when deciding which career trajectory you want, um, one of the turnoffs about primary care is they don't, re you don't get reimbursed well. And so that's why, all the medical students, you know, they want to be the cardiologist, the gastroenterologist, the, the orthopedic surgeon, the dermatologist, the ophthalmologist, because those reimburse very, very, very well. So it'll be interesting to see how all, all these shifts in uh, reimbursement models, like the shift to value-based care for primary care, but also uh, for these specialty services, how that changes 
how students approach choosing a career. Uh, but then it all goes back to how do we let them know about all this and all this that's going on? Um, how do we keep them updated? From med students choosing their specialty to clinics incentivizing their physicians to hit quality metrics, we all know that money drives the business of primary care. And perhaps it's obvious, but it's important to name. The United States spends more on healthcare as a share of the economy than any other country. In 2018, health spending accounted for 17.7% of the U.S. gross domestic product nearly twice as much as the average OECD country, despite scant evidence of better outcomes. These costs also are anticipated to rise, reaching $6 trillion, or 19.7% of the gross domestic product within the next 10 years. So our big idea in the healthcare industry has been, let's start with value-based care. Michael E. Porter from Harvard Business School said, a way to transform healthcare is to realign competition with value for patients. Value in healthcare is the health outcome per dollar of cost expended. If all system participants have to compete on value, value will improve dramatically. And he's right. Competition, incentives, it's how the Western world ticks. And it's necessary to engage and reconfigure the system to incentivize healthcare providers, payers, systems, etc to benefit patients. So that leads us to our next discussion. Let's hear what Jared and Blake think about value-based care. I will say, I think Blake can speak more to like what's going on financially with all the models, but just in regards to like patient autonomy, right? That's one of the ethical pillars of medicine. That's like one of the first things we learn is that at the end of the day, the patient is the final decision maker. And when value-based care is gives so much weight to how patients, the lab results patients are producing, the preventative care measures that patients are following up with. Uh, there's so much weight given to those patients. And like you said, at the end of the day, it's their choice. If they don't want the COVID vaccine, if they don't want the flu vaccine, what can the physician, what can the physician do? And I saw a, a Twitter thread regarding like value-based care and the percentage of patients in the population who got their flu vaccine. I think maybe like they had 89% of their patient population on paper got the flu vaccine, but they were missing documentation from like 5% of the of the remaining population. So technically, they weren't going to get a quality bonus from it because they were missing the 5% because it wasn't documented. And this can go back to like the integration and the fragmentation problem, or this could uh, just be the fact that patients just did not want to get their flu vaccine. And what are you going to do? Like incentivize the physician to incentivize the patient, just keep the cycle of trying to spend more money into like patient-friendly platforms into robust patient experience technology, like you can only do so much, which, you know, it is a conflict with value-based care. And that, that's at the end of the day, what it comes down to. But Blake can speak more about the current state of the model. Yeah, Blake, I'd love to hear your thoughts. Yeah, well, kind of kind of going off that point, Jared, I think that that's why you're seeing a ton of activity and investment in kind of like the patient engagement landscape. Um, so for instance, home health, like, like we've already touched about a little bit is, you know, you have all these clinicians at your disposal to to go into homes and, and meet with patients and and you know see how they're doing. Um, but but I also agree. You know, at the end of the day, it is the patient's decision, and you know how much of the onus is on the the provider to you know care for the patient if the patient doesn't want to get vaccinated or doesn't want to change their nutritional habits or doesn't want to you know all of these things or, or take a drug that you know their provider 
prescribe for them or those sorts of things. Um, so adherence is, uh, I mean, that's just a large problem, but, but I do think that they're, they're kind of doing their best to increase that engagement. And, and you're seeing a lot of, you know, innovators in the primary care space and, and Medicaid really do a lot and, and re- really reach out to the patient and, you know, even um, engage with homeless populations and those sorts of things to, to really close that gap. So I think that there's a lot of promising things as far as that's concerned, but at the same time, it's that's almost like one of the, the crux of value-based care is the, you know, what is value, right? Like how much value can the provider or the physician or the primary care platform bring if the patient doesn't want to, you know, be, be involved in that process? Oh, I like the patient doesn't, does the patient even know they're in a value-based care arrangement with the, right, right? Like the physician, uh, the patient doesn't know they're in an ACO, um, so is, is the primary care provider going to spend 10 minutes explaining reimbursement models to the patient and saying, I need you to do this because I won't get a bonus if you don't get your flu vaccine? Yeah. And I, I think that um, like to that point, like I do think uh, the way that value-based care was kind of, or maybe not value-based care, but kind of what's going on in healthcare right now is that, you know, traditionally healthcare has been reactive, right? So, so patients go, you know, you feel sick, you go to the doctor, right? You break your leg, you go get an x-ray, right? Those sorts of things. Um, But but value-based care and kind of these new platforms that are coming online are, is all the stuff outside of that visit, right? So it's, it's, uh, you know, texting the patient, it's uh, doing in-home health assessments or, you know, engaging with that patient in different ways and, uh, you know, prompting them for certain things. Um, So I think that we're going to see a lot more kind of intelligence emerge there. I don't know how much it's going to move the needle, uh, but I think it's just, you know, it's, it's interesting to think about. Yeah, it's going to be interesting, you know, next couple of years, next few years for sure. Well, th- so that kind of leads me into, there's a tech giant that has a watch that's been monitoring your health status and they're going to launch an insurance company. I find that very interesting, right? I'm sure you've seen it. It's like, is it a watch or is it a Trojan horse, right? Like, <laughs> so you know, just finding ways that technology really can maybe change the landscape of primary care that we're not even thinking about. I know one of the big movements I've heard about is uh, critical care at home. So hospitaling at home. Um, And so to the point of hospitals, we're diverting care away from the hospitals, um, going to more outpatient. So the hospitals themselves have the infrastructure and potentially could hospital at home. Any thoughts on the hospital at home movement or or maybe other movements that we haven't talked about so far that you guys kind of have your eye on? Yeah. So I think two weeks ago, I covered a hospital at home and the healthcare huddle newsletter. So during the pandemic, CMS made people more aware of this uh, acute hospital at home care waiver, which basically waived a requirement that nurses had to spend 24 hours in the patient's home. So since this is waived, you know, nurses can stop by once, twice, three times a day, and the reimbursement is the same as inpatient, uh, which is very attractive. Um, and additionally, with the advent of all of this digital health technology, from wearable technology, remote patient monitoring, telehealth, workflow and coordinated care platforms, uh, it truly helped enable this hospital at home movement. I think before the pandemic, there was around like 24 hospitals that were participating in hospital at home programs, and now there's 260. Again, follow the money. Just the advent of digital health has made it has facilitated um, hospital at home, and the outcomes in hospital at home care are the same, if not better, than inpatient care. Uh, I think the the only detriment is that like 
patients in the hospital at home uh, have like one extra visit from the physician compared to inpatient or something like that. But this is for hospital at home is for acutely ill patients who are stable enough to get care at home. So this is like uh, heart failure exacerbations, COPD exacerbations, complicated UTIs, uh, cellulitis, where physicians, you know, this it scares the patient, but physicians know how to treat this. And they can do so confidently and comfortably in the patient's home. So I think this area of hospital at home is just going to continue to take off, especially with all these resources that we have to coordinate and streamline care. There's obviously people aren't so bullish on it because it's still very early. But as more data comes through, I'm sure people's mind will either shift one way or the other. Yeah, I think that the uh, the omnibus bill act extended that waiver to 2024, yeah. which is uh, very promising. Yeah, from from what I've seen, I think you know, you've got a, ton, a lot of hospitals signing on, like Jared, you mentioned 260 or so. But I've heard that enrollment's kind of a little slow. And I think that that just happens with yeah. any kind of, you know, new program or pilot. So hopefully, um, they continue to, to get the runway to, you know, work through that model. And it makes sense. It's, it seems like a win-win. Um, you know, the hospital gets to, you know, discharge that patient to the home. And um, I imagine would reduce you know, clinical staffing ratios and those sorts of things. So that would help with burnout, assuming, I guess, you can staff the hospital at home segment mm-hmm. of it as well. Yeah, so. that's like one of the, the drawbacks. Like, well, there's a labor shortage. How do you expect to staff them? Right. So that's a good point. But also I say there's, aside from hospital at home, there's also just home health. So at Mount Sinai, there's like a whole physician group who will visit patients in their home and do a primary care visit there. And I would love for a physician to just stop by my apartment, check me out, and then get on the way so I don't have to take the subway anywhere. At the end of every podcast, we ask the following rapid-fire questions. So the first one is, what do you think is the biggest challenge in primary care today? And Blake, um, if you just want to kick us off there, just biggest challenge? Yeah, um, I think we've kind of touched on it a little bit today, but I would say that I think that there's just a lack of incentive currently to for uh, primary care to, to serve underserved populations or reach underserved populations. Um, and you've kind of, you know, seen that dynamic with, um, you know, hospitals or physician clinics um, locating in suburbs, right? Because it's, you know, high commercial rates and, and fast population growth and those sorts of things. So um, would love to find ways to, you know, continue innovation and kind of Medicaid and, and the, the lower underserved populations. Jared, same question. Yeah, so I think the equal and equitable care is a very big challenge, but I'll, I'll add also just like the general like PCP shortage uh, and the fact that you know we're only going to grow 3% in the next decade while other, other providers are growing 50%. So like how do we attract more uh, medical students and undergrad students who want to take a career in primary care? Okay. And then how will primary care change in the next five years? Um, and so Jared, I'll let you take that one first. Yeah, so I just think we'll continue to see more the shift to like value-based care arrangements uh, and Medicare Advantage will surpass like 50% of all Medicare patients. So the, the data shows that this is the path over the next five years. Blake? Yeah. And I, w- I would say, um, I think that we are going to see um, vertical alignment dominate the next five years um, with with payers, especially snatching up clinical assets. And then beyond that, I'm really excited to see how alternative payment models advance in primary care. Um, you know, potentially seeing Maryland's total cost of care model being expanded or, um, you know, more downside risk arrangements and those sorts of things. Ho- hopefully we can kind of, you know, move the needle a little bit more while also making it financially you know, feasible. 
Absolutely. Okay, so last question. Um, what is one big, scary dream you have for yourself or the industry? And Blake, I'll, I'll let you kick us off on that one. Yeah, um, I, w- I would say just kind of like a personal goal of mine is to uh, eventually get to the point where I can kind of, you know, make, you know, impactful investments in healthcare into areas that I, you know, want to see grow or, or think are, you know, good business models for, for whatever, you know, that case might be. Beyond that, I would love to just continue writing hospitality to to help, you know, current healthcare leaders and like decision makers make informed decisions and say, oh, okay, well, this is what's going on. Um, here's who's doing what, and here are the policies driving those things. Um, well, let's look into this because you know Blake wrote about it. <laughs> That'd be pretty cool, but uh, we'll, we'll see if we get there. <laughs> hey, you inspire me. I love reading what you write. (laughs) Thank you. I appreciate it. So Jared, one big scary dream you have for yourself or the industry? So for the industry, this is what keeps me up all night. But when I close my eyes, I would love for care of the United States to be as streamlined as like walking into an Apple store where you walk in, someone approaches you, says, what do you need? They say, I need this and that. And they type something in on their phone. And then all this work goes on in the background that you have no idea about. But your customer experience, your patient experience is so streamlined and elegant that you come in scared and wanting to be treated, uh, but you leave knowing that you've been cared for and are confident in your future treatment plan. So that's my big scary dream. Not sure if it will ever happen, but when, I could hope. I believe it will. Love to hear it. That's great. Well, thank you gentlemen for joining our podcast today. Thank you for listening to the Business of Primary Care podcast. We are honored that you've chosen to be a part of this community. In a world where traditional primary care must adapt, evolve, and change to thrive, we believe community, supportive resources, and education are essential. We are committed to finding answers and a better way forward. You can expect us to provide you with the latest news, trends, and best practices so that you can win in the business of primary care. If you haven't yet, please subscribe to our newsletter at businessofprimarycare.com and follow us on LinkedIn. If you enjoyed today's podcast, please leave us a review and be sure to subscribe to get new episodes wherever you like to listen. Listen.